Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. This week is Shabbat Parah, the Sabbath of the Red Cow, on which we rehearse the purification ceremony of the ashes of the red heifer in preparation for Passover, a seven-day purification which readies the worshiper to enter into God's presence in the temple to offer sacrifices and to participate in the worship. Our Torah portion likewise begins at the conclusion of a similar seven-day period of purification and preparation, that is, the installation of the priesthood, Aaron and his sons. After seven days of inauguration, they are finally ready to begin their job, and that's where our Torah portion begins on the eighth day, when Moses says, Today the Lord will appear to you. Ruminate on those words. Today the Lord will appear to you. Suppose that you knew that God was going to appear to you today, not in the afterlife, but here and now, in his sanctuary. How might you prepare yourself for such a meeting? Likewise, Shabbat Parah reminds us that we should be spiritually preparing ourselves for the festival of Passover when we are to appear before the Lord. We should approach the holy days with a sense of reverence, the fear of the Lord, and in anticipation of a genuine encounter with the presence of the living God. Let no one look toward the festival or the table of the master with an eye toward debauchery, a time for quaffing tankards of wine, as it says in our Torah portion, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. Leviticus 10.9 And Paul says, One is hungry, another is drunk. Shall I praise you? I will not praise you. 1 Corinthians 11:20 through 22 Instead a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup and again he says whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the master in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the master for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-30 With these words, Paul seeks to instill in us some sense of the fear of the Lord, lest we become casual and cavalier in our service of God, like the error of Nadab and Abihu. Why doesn't God appear to us? It would make things so much easier, wouldn't it? Why can't we see God? Obviously, because God is invisible. Not invisible like some state of unseen energy, like a wave or a particle beyond the perception of the human eye. Neither is he unseen matter made of a transparent substance or concealed under some non-reflective surface. He is not invisible in the way that the invisible man is or in the way that someone wearing a magical ring might be. He is invisible like something that does not exist at all. That's because God's existence completely transcends reality. 
He is so much greater than this world that, from the perspective of the creatures in this world, it's as if he doesn't even exist. Like the author of a novel does not exist inside the story he has written, God remains outside the universe, utterly beyond our five senses and the reach of our minds. That is why Solomon asked, Who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Acts 7, 48-50, quoting Isaiah 66. No one can see God, and no one has seen God at any time, John 1.18. In the Messianic era, however, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, Isaiah 40, verse 5. Does this mean that God will finally become visible? No, it means that his interactions with the world will no longer be concealed. It will no longer take any leap of faith to believe in his existence. His existence will be obvious to everyone. When God's presence and his existence are perceptible, it's called the glory of the Lord. God's presence remains unseen in this world, but he manifests himself in many ways. A supernatural miracle, a divine visitation, a divine revelation, a dream or a vision of Hashem, an unambiguous answer to prayer, the appearance of an angelic host, a heavenly light, a prism of color, a voice from heaven, a pillar of cloud by day, a fire by night, a consuming fire. These might all be described as manifestations of God's presence. The Bible categorizes such revelations of the invisible God under the catch-all term, glory of the Lord. That's what we call it when the existence of God momentarily becomes obvious. We are mostly blind to God's glory. We don't perceive Him or His interactions in the world. It's possible to live one's entire life from birth to death, unaware of God's existence. Whole lives are lived without a glimpse of God's glory. Yet, at the same time, the fiery six-winged angels around his throne in the unseen world never cease from exclaiming, Holy, holy, holy! The whole earth is full of his glory. For those with eyes to see by faith, all things, all places, all circumstances, every blade of grass, every leaf of every tree, and even all people proclaim God's glory. The story of the tabernacle teaches us that God wants to be revealed in this world. He wants to live with us and to reveal his glory among us. When he took Israel out of Egypt, he said, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25 verse 8. He desires to take up residence within his universe like a king might desire to dwell in a palace he has built. He wants to interact with his creatures, and he wants them to draw near to him. But how can the holy and transcendent God dwell in the mundane and ordinary world? 
he told the children of Israel to build for him a holy place after the pattern of his heavenly palace. They did so. Then he filled it with an aspect of his being, his dwelling presence, the Shekinah. The glory of his presence filled the tabernacle to such an extent that Moses himself could not enter, and this created a dilemma. If no one can enter the presence of God's glory in his tabernacle, how can the tabernacle be a tent of meeting where people can draw near to him? The Lord explained that anyone who wished to draw near to his presence should bring a gift. He told Moses to ordain Aaron and his sons as ministers to receive those gifts and to represent him to the nation. For seven days, Aaron and his sons underwent a series of purifications, sanctifications, and ordination rituals to prepare themselves. Our Torah portion begins, On the eighth day, the priesthood's first day on the job. Leviticus 9.1 says, Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. On the eighth day, all Israel gathered at the tent of meeting, curious to see what would happen. Moses told Aaron and his sons, Today the Lord will appear to you. He repeated the promise a few verses later as he issued instructions for the day's sacrificial service. He said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Up until then, the people of Israel had seen God's glory only from a distance. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it. The people stayed at a distance, terrified. The glory of the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire. To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Exodus 24.17 Only Moses could approach the mountain or ascend it. Now the presence of the Lord had left Mount Sinai and come to dwell in their midst, in the tabernacle they had built, and Moses promised, Today the Lord will appear to you. The specific today to which Moses referred happened to be the eighth day since he had set set up the tabernacle. In the Bible, the eighth day indicates something extraordinary. It's something outside of the regular pattern of the divine seven. Seven days correspond to the seven days of the week, but the eighth day hints to a day outside of time. The six weekdays represent the ordinary course of human history during which God's presence remains largely concealed from the eyes of humanity. The seventh day, Sabbath, represents the Messianic era, the thousand-year future kingdom when God's glory will be revealed universally. But the eighth day represents something that comes after all of that, something outside of time. The eighth day represents the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Just as it's impossible for us to see God or even properly imagine him, it's impossible for us to visualize the world to come. The prophets say that it's beyond our ability to imagine. The world to come can be apprehended only through the divine wisdom of God, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 
1 Corinthians 2, 8, and 9. In the world to come, we will experience God's glory in a way that is completely unimaginable and inconceivable to the mortal mind. Our mortal bodies and limited human minds do not currently have the capacity or scope necessary to conceive it. The world to come is outside their range of bandwidth, much as God himself is beyond our, cons- our comprehension. But these mortal minds are to be transformed in resurrection. We will be like the resurrected Messiah, like angels in heaven. The resurrected body will not be subject to the same limitations as our physical bodies are today. Instead, we will experience a new spiritual physical reality which unites both the physical and the spiritual and moves between both. Our master Yeshua entered that new spiritual physical reality when he rose from the dead on what the Gospels call the day after the Sabbath. That is, on the eighth day. The world to come of the eighth day is a perfect world, but it lacks one thing. It lacks our lack of clear vision. That's why the sages say, better one day in repentance and good deeds in this world than a whole lifetime in the world to come. In the world to come, we will find no merit in repentance and good deeds because the existence of God and his immediate presence will become completely obvious and absolutely overwhelming to the extent that we will scarcely know where we end and he begins. It will require no faith, no conquest of the will, because there there will be no temptation or sin. There's no reward for seeking what is already found. It's only in this world that we have the opportunity to seek after the invisible God and to serve him by faith in the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and in the belief that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. Spiritual wisdom can be obtained only in this world through intentionally practicing God's presence and the fear of the Lord, even when it appears he is not present. In the world to come, God's presence is obvious and the fear of the Lord is without question. Back in this world, Moses instructed Aaron to begin the sacrifices of the eighth day by offering a burnt offering and a sin offering for himself and a series of offerings for the whole assembly of Israel. After describing the day's sacrifices, the Torah informs us that Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Just eight days earlier, Moses himself had been unable to enter the tent of meeting. The fullness of the glory of God's presence prevented him. Eight days later, After the installation of the priesthood, we read, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Leviticus 9, 23 and 24. Divine fire leapt out from inside the sanctuary and consumed the heap of sacrifices that Aaron and his sons had laid upon the altar, signaling God's approval. He accepted the gifts, symbolically receiving Israel into his presence. The fear of the Lord swept over the assembly, 
reflexively. The people shouted with joy and fell on their faces to worship before the Lord in total awe and reverence. God dwelt in the midst of his people, and his people had access to his presence. The eighth day of the ceremonies on which the glory of the Lord appeared to Israel in the tabernacle happened to also be the eighth day of the month, the month of Nisan. But there's also a significant festival on the biblical calendar called the eighth day, which takes place in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei. It's called the eighth day, Shemini Yetzirah, because it takes place after the seven days of the festival of booths. Leviticus 23.36. It's a holy day in its own right. Solomon chose that day for the culmination of his dedication of the temple. He began the dedication on the first day of booths, where it says, The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The celebration and the dedication ceremonies continued through the festival of Sukkot. Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, Second Chronicles 7, 8 and 9. Again, a seven-day inauguration followed by an eighth day. God's presence remained in the temple that Solomon built, until the days of the prophet Ezekiel. Shortly before the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and burned the temple, the prophet Ezekiel saw an awesome vision of God's glory, transported on a heavenly chariot, leaving the holy house in protest over the sin and apostasy of the nation. This was the vision of Ezekiel's chariot. Sometime later, the prophet saw another vision of God's glory. He foresaw the future messianic era when the glory of God's presence returns to a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 43 verse 4 says, The glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. Then the priesthood will consecrate the altar for seven days, after which it shall be on the eighth day and onward. The priest shall offer up your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel 43.27 Again, a seven-day inauguration, followed by an eighth day. After the days of Ezekiel, the exiled generation of Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. They hoped to relive the experience of the generation of Moses and the generation of Solomon. They hoped to experience the glory of God's presence as Ezekiel predicted. But no such miraculous revelations occurred. Instead, the people felt deflated by the poverty and state of the temple they had built. It simply did not compare to the glory that had been. It did not resemble the temple Ezekiel had predicted, nor did the glory of the Lord appear to them. The Lord told them not to feel disheartened. He asked, Who has despised the day of small things? Zechariah 4.10 On the 21st of the seventh month, which is the eighth day after Sukkot, the prophet Haggai addressed the community. 
It was the anniversary of the day Solomon completed his dedication of the temple. Haggai asked the people, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? Haggai 2.3 It was true. The rebuilt temple was nothing like the one Ezekiel had foreseen. It had none of the opulence, wealth, or grandeur of Solomon's temple. There had been no miraculous appearance of the glory of the Lord. Was God even dwelling in their midst? The priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept. Ezra 3.12 The Lord spoke through the prophet. He reminded them of his promise to dwell among them, and he said, My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. He turned their attention to a future redemption when the grandeur of his temple in Jerusalem will eclipse even that of Solomon's. In the Messianic era, the nations will bring their wealth as tribute to God, and God will fill the temple with his glory. Haggai 2, 4-7 says, But now take courage. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with all the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The writer of the book of Hebrews quoted this prophecy from Haggai 2 to encourage his readers to remain steadfast in their faith and the fear of the Lord. He wrote his epistle in the last years before the second destruction of the temple. In those days, the temple authorities banned the Jewish disciples of Yeshua from God's house. Many disciples were tempted to renounce their allegiance to Yeshua. Many disciples were tempted to fold under the pressure and renounce their allegiance to Yeshua. The writer of the book of Hebrews warned the brothers and sisters that the revelation of God's glory in the coming messianic era and the world to come was going to far exceed the revelation at Sinai. At Mount Sinai, so terrible was the sight of the revelation of God's glory that even Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. The people were so afraid that they begged that no further word should be spoken to them. But disciples of Yeshua anticipate a revelation of God far more awesome than any of that. We will not be ascending to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion in the Messianic era, and to the city of the living God in the world to come, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews twelve twenty two through 24 The epistle turns our attention from the temple, as we know it, in Jerusalem, to the future temple of the Messianic era, and to the new Jerusalem of the world to come. He warns us not to renounce our faith or refuse to obey the words of Yeshua because, If those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth at Mount Sinai, much less will we escape 
who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Hebrews 12.25 To emphasize his point, he quotes the prophecy from Haggai. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Hebrews 12.26, quoting Haggai 2.6 God's voice shook the earth at Mount Sinai, and it's going to shake the earth again. That's why the prophecy says, Yet once more I will shake. This time, however, God's voice will shake not only just the earth, but the whole universe. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. So powerful will be the overwhelming glory of the presence of God that creation will evaporate before him, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The created order will be recreated into a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. Meditating on that future revelation of God's glory should inspire us to to reverence and fear the Lord. The only thing remaining from this life will be those things which cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12.28, namely the kingdom of heaven. He says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In what sense is God a consuming fire? The glory of the Lord appeared to Moses as a fire on the burning bush, as a pillar of fire by night to lead the children of Israel, as a consuming fire atop Mount Sinai, as a consuming fire that came out from the sanctuary to devour the sacrifices on the altar, and to Nadab and Abihu as a consuming fire that came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Therefore, we exercise the fear of the Lord and heed the voice of God that speaks to us from heaven through the words of Yeshua. In him, the presence of God dwells, and through him, the presence of God dwells in our midst. Remember, I asked the question, why doesn't God appear to us? Because he is is the unseen God. John's epistle says, no one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And in another place, John says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the glory of our great God and Savior. And in his presence is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Take on my yoke and learn from it and find rest for your soul.